Is there a preferred? I'll sit on the side. Hi, I'm. Oh. What a rookie move. Hi, I'm Rostin. Um, before we get started with um, anything, I'm going to ask you to do something mildly annoying. Uh, if, if you don't feel like participating, just just don't. It's okay. Um, but I'm going to ask you to resort yourselves according to a couple dimensions. So first, if I could have everyone stand back up, and if you can, you know, grab all your things. <laughs> all right. So if you consider yourself an introvert. I'd like you to move to the back part of this uh, <laughs> seating area. If you consider yourself an extrovert, move forward. <laughs> but don't sit down, even once you've kind of sorted yourself partially. If you consider yourself someone who is a uh, thinker, move to this side. If you consider yourself a doer, move to that side. Oh. <laughs> There's a little selection bias in this uh, in this crowd. <laughs> and that and then you can sit down. <laughs> wow, that was work way more illuminating than I even thought it was going to be. <laughs> So that what does that mean? We have a lot of introverted think. I guess it's yeah. This is pretty pretty predictable. Um, <laughs> we've got like a strong introvert thinker bias in this room. So hopefully you learned a little bit about yourself. You learned a little bit about other people in this room as individuals, and you also learned a little bit about the dynamics of this space and this gathering. Um, all of that through a two-question uh, questionnaire. Um, so, of course, questionnaires are the subject of this book, which was wonderful. I encourage you all to buy it, read it, have it signed by Evan Kinley. Um, he's going to read a short section of it to give you a sense of what he's writing about. And then we're going to ask some questions. All right, let's begin. Okay. Thanks, Rostin. Um, so I'm just going to read a little tiny bit of the introduction and then about half of chapter one, which are, chapters are pretty short. Um, and uh, this is kind of the, the prehistory into the early history of the kind of questionnaires um, I'm talking about. Sort of one of the problems or one of the, the challenges with a book like this is to kind of figure out where to start where, uh, when exactly the kind of object you're talking about comes into existence. With something like questionnaires, um, it really was hard because there are surveys of various kinds that go back really millennia. Um, but I was sort of particularly interested in a kind of, I guess you call it personal questionnaire or um, a questionnaire that sort of had to do with human beings and their characteristics, right? It's not about surveys of how many oxen you have or something like that. It's like, it's, it's, it's more about uh, your personal, what we now call personal data, right? So, um, so I wanted to just, uh, I'll just read a little bit here um, about how this particular kinds of question, kind of questionnaire comes into being. Most pre-modern questionnaires, like the cedula issued in 1577 by King Philip II of Spain to account for royal holdings in the Indies, were instruments of governance geared toward enumerating and keeping track of state property. They were not beloved. 
The word questionnaire appears first in French in its modern sense in the mid-19th century. Some of the word's early uses suggest persistent associations with the Catholic practices of catechism and confession, as well as with governmental inquisition and interrogation. In the 18th century, the term questionnaire juré described a torturer. Questionnaires weren't instruments of torture exactly, but they were vehicles of the scarcely more popular process of taxation. Respondents were asked about things that could easily be identified, described, and counted, and in which the state might take an interest, primarily money and property. It was not always easy to get people to respond. Hostility toward taxation seems to have bled into people's reactions to other kinds of surveys as well. In the late 17th and early 18th centuries, naturalists inspired by Sir Francis Bacon experimented with questionnaires as a means for soliciting reports about the flora and fauna of distant regions to which it would be impracticable to travel. From 1645 on, a group of intelligencers associated with the agricultural reformer Samuel Hartlib issued a series of surveys to landed gentry and parish priests about the features of their respective home regions. The first entry of Thomas Matchell's snappily titled, this is all the title, that the northern counties which abound in antiquities and ancient gentry may no longer be buried in silence, information is desired concerning the following queries as they lie in order. That's the end of the title. For instance, reads, one, the name of the parish and why so called, how written in ancient records, in what diocese, barony, hundred, or ward is it said to lie, how is it bounded and divided from other parishes on the east, west, north, and south, etc., by what rivers, hedges, walls, causeways, or common and well-known landmarks, meets, and boundaries, etc., or are they, or any of them, litigious or doubtful? All of these early scientific questionnaires had return rates approaching zero. <laughs> When they came back at all, the respondents often expressed skepticism toward the entire enterprise. One landowner wrote that he did not care to be concerned over much in any business that has not at least some appearance either of present pleasure or future profit. What is surprising, perhaps, is not that the returns to such inquiries were so poor, the historian Adam Fox observes, but that researchers continued to be optimistic about their value for so long. Fox is right. It's remarkable that, in the face of overwhelming indifference, scholars persevered in crafting elaborate prompts and instructions for no one, sending out inquiry after inquiry into the abyss. Faith in the potential value of the questionnaire was strong enough to overcome its present uselessness. Throughout the 18th and even into the 19th century, the questionnaire was less a viable research technique than a utopian literary genre linked to an idea of the scientific perfection of society. A better world could be realized, reformers dreamed, or at least some progress toward it could be made if we could simply get people to fill out the necessary forms. And then uh, I'll just read a little bit about... uh, a man named Francis Galton, who some of you may have heard of, um, who uh, was sort of one of the early pioneers of uh, the kind of questionnaires, psychological questionnaires that I'm interested in. In 1870, an English scientist named Francis Galton submitted a seven-page questionnaire to 180 members of the Royal Society of London for improving natural knowledge. Though hardly lacking in ambition, Galton was not at all confident of his success. It was a daring undertaking to ask, as I did in 1874, every fellow of the Royal Society who had filled some important post to answer a multitude of questions needful for my purpose, a few of which touched on religion and other delicate matters, he recalled in his 1908 autobiography. The size of my circular was alarming. Much experience of sending circular questions has convinced me of the impossibility of foretelling whether a particular person will receive them kindly or not. Some are unexpectedly touchy. One man of high scientific distinction, Galton remembered, was almost furious at being questioned. On the other hand, a cabinet minister, whom I knew but slightly, gave me full and very interesting information without demur. 
Dalton's nervousness about his daring undertaking is not surprising. Many of his queries, even by today's standards, are invasive. They touch on ancestry. Your father and mother, are they respectively English, Welsh, Scotch, Irish, Jewish, or foreign? Physical characteristics. Temperament, if distinctly nervous, sanguine, bilious, or lymphatic. Measurement, round inside rim of your hat. Education. How long were you at small schools, large schools, universities, and what ages? And matters of belief. Has the religion taught in your youth had any deterrent effect on the freedom of your researches? Galton felt the need to reassure the respondents that the, res the responses would be kept anonymous. Entries marked private will be dealt with in strict confidence, he assured the questionnaire's recipients. They will be used only as data for general statistical conclusions. Galton's survey was ultimately answered by about 100 scientists, including Charles Darwin and James Clerk Maxwell, and the results were eventually published anonymously and analyzed in his 1874 volume, English Men of Science, Their Nature and Nurture. Uh, but Galton didn't stop there. He drew a, uh, sorry, the immediate aim of the book was to refute the arguments of the Swiss botanist Augustin Pyramus de Candolle, who held that environment and not genetic predisposition was the determining factor in scientific achievement. But Galton didn't stop there. From his data, he drew a raft of dubious generalizations. He concluded, for instance, that the character of scientific men is strongly anti-feminine. Their mind is directed to facts and abstract theories and not to persons or human interests. In many respects, they have little sympathy with female ways of thought. He also found that men of science were hostile toward classical education and religion, all opinions that dovetailed as it happened with Galton's own. Whatever the merits of his scientific conclusions, which even at the time were met with skepticism, Galton's study was a definite methodological success. More than any other single scientific work, English men of science established the self-report questionnaire in the United Kingdom as a legitimate instru instrument for the collection of empirical data. After these preliminary successes, much of Galton's energy would go toward convincing his contemporaries to respond to more and more questionnaires. Historically, this had been a Herculean task, as the heart-lip circle's poor response rates attest. Galton, an ardent social reformer as well as a scientist, shared his predecessor's ambition and idealism. He, too, imagined a world remade by asking the right questions. But the specific details of his utopianism now seem more than a little disturbing. Like many of his contemporaries, Galton held deeply racist beliefs, which in his case had been reinforced by visits to Africa and the Middle East in the 1840s and 1850s. The superiority of white Europeans to all other races was for him an article of faith. Both uh, his books Hereditary Genius and English Men of Science laid the foundation for eugenics, a science Galton both named and pioneered. In a paper published in the American Journal of Sociology in 1904, he defined eugenics as the science that deals with all influences that improve the inborn qualities of a race, also with those that develop them to the utmost advantage. In simultaneously fostering the sciences of anthropometrics, statistics, actually I'm going to skip this part, the eugenics movement would go on to have a catastrophe uh, catastrophic influence in the first half of the 20th century, most notably in Nazi Germany. And there is no question that Galton, though he died in 1911 before eugenics' worst excesses would become evident, deserves a share of the shame. For the moment, however, I am less concerned with what Galton is trying to prove, with, sorry, with what Galton is trying to prove, the genetic superiority of white European aristocrats to all other human beings on the planet, than with how he went about proving it. In his work on heredity, he took the first steps towards solving a major practical problem for the social sciences, how to convince people to overcome their disinclination to provide personal information about themselves. 
Most men and women shrink from having their hereditary worth recorded, Galton observed in the fortnightly review in 1883. There may be family diseases of which they hardly dare to speak, except on rare occasions and then in whispered hints or obscure phrases, as though timidity of utterance could hush thoughts, and as though what they fondly suppose to be locked-up domestic secrets may not be brooded about with exaggeration among the surrounding gossips. This reluctance to share accurate details of family medical history seemed to Galton ignoble, and yet, moralized as we may, the difficulty remains. The solution, he decided, was to target medical men specifically, who he believed would be tempted by an appeal to their scientific zeal to write about themselves at their best and in great multitudes. At the same time, he exploited financial instincts, offering cash prizes of up to 500 pounds to those candidates who shall best succeed in defining vividly, completely, and concrete and concisely the characteristics, medical and other, of the various members of their respective families. Finally, he appealed to Victorian domestic sentiment, claiming that the completion of his questionnaires would bring families closer together. The inquiries I wish to set in motion by means of these prizes are undertakings in which many relatives will gladly join, he predicted. It involves much pleasant correspondence with early friends who had long dropped out of sight, and it creates an agreeable bond of interest with the relations living at a distance. His emphasis was on the generation of family heirlooms rather than experimental data. Whatever may be the value of these results, the facts incidentally obtained during the course of the inquiry will form a separate document much prized by the family, Galton declared, and he collaborated with the publishing industry to produce such documents. In 1884, Macmillan brought out Record of Family Faculties and supplemented it with a pamphlet entitled The Life History Album, in which new or expectant parents could record the development of their offspring as they grew. With this stratagem, Galton invented the baby book, a popular genre that continues to flourish today. I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, so your book kind of traces a trajectory of this survey instrument from something that people kind of really disliked doing um, to kind of something that people now do kind of for, for their own edification for pleasure and kind of can't stop stop doing um, and kind of the joy that people have in, in answering questions so can you maybe in a capsule way kind of talk about how that trajectory came to be like why is it that people now kind of like love to take questionnaires on the internet love to um, take Myers-Briggs tests all these kinds of things um, that at one point would be like very painful like what's the difference between a Galton or pre-Galton survey and, and what we have now yeah so that was kind of insofar as I had a, like a question guiding guiding my research and guiding my reading, that was it. It was kind of, at what point did questionnaires become fun? Sort of stipulating they are fun. Not everybody thinks they're fun. In fact, one of my editors was like, oh God, I hate questionnaires so much when I, you know, when I started doing this. And I was, it, it kind of made me paranoid because I'm like, well, maybe everybody does. But I think it is really true that you know, a certain kind of questionnaire, a certain kind of personality quiz, um, the sort of starting point for me, although it's the end of the book, was really the um, BuzzFeed's quizzes that were, uh, they're still pretty common, but they were kind of uh, ubiquitous at the, I think the beginning of 2014, right? And um, so uh, what city should you really live in? What kind of, you know, Care Bear are you? Whatever. Just all kinds of different, all kinds of different uh, personality tests. And it seemed that people really were addicted to them. I took a lot of them, in part because I was starting to think about this book, but also just because they're fun. Um, so I was interested in whether any kind of line, sort of significant line, could be drawn because uh, I knew just a little bit about the early history of social science and, and self-report questionnaires and stuff. Just trying to figure out how to get from here to there, uh, whether they're really, you know, whether it was a case of um, 
uh, you know, um, one form kind of uh, evolving into another, or whether they were kind of parallel on parallel tracks. Um, and what I found was there sort of are parallel tracks in that. And from the very beginning, there were questionnaires for fun. Um, the section that just follows the one I read is about um, Victorian confession albums, which are um, with this, this popular fad in the 1870s where people would fill out questionnaires. The most famous uh, is the Proust questionnaire, which is still kind of um, reprinted in Vanity Fair and, and other places today. But, uh, you know, as early at the time Galton was working, essentially there were people who were taking... Um, taking kinds of personality questionnaires for fun. Um, and what I was finding was that the sort of history of social science and um, uh, various attempts to kind of extract information on a large scale were running parallel to this other history of uh, questionnaires and quizzes as games, as amusements, but they, they keep kind of inter, interweaving in interesting ways. And then other things like eugenics, which I didn't expect to be writing about at all, weirdly just kept... It was, it's not just Galton. It just kept popping up everywhere. Uh, so a lot of what I thought of as slightly kind of sinister things were, were kind of cropping up too. So to just dive right into that, like, is there, uh, is there a downside or a dark side to a BuzzFeed questionnaire? Like, is that something that you're worried about? Is there like a eugenic component of that um, activity? Uh-huh. I, I mean, no. I, I wouldn't... I, I, I did um, look into that question a lot. I mean, so the, the, insofar as anybody worries about BuzzFeed quizzes, which is not that much, because essentially they are just silly and fun, right? Um, uh, at the worst, uh, a waste of time, but, uh, but not, you know, uh, not evil. Uh, the, the, there is some... There is a certain... Um, concern out there uh, that isn't original with me about them, which is that BuzzFeed may be somehow retaining the information that people give to them, uh, repackaging and selling that information. Uh, basically, at this point, there is a pretty lucrative market for personal data extracted in any number of ways uh, and very few legal restrictions or regulations on it. So it's certainly not impossible that, that BuzzFeed is harvesting the data because, you know, they are getting you know, many, many millions of, of, of people to enter in trivial, but, you know, uh, personal data in bulk. So the, the question is whether what gets done with that data and whether it might be used, uh, you know, for, for purposes that the, that the people who took the quizzes didn't, didn't sign up for. Because it isn't like, um, in the social sciences, there's, uh, what is it called? The thing where you have to... Um, like a human IRBs, yeah. Uh, uh, you, you need to... Wait, what's it, what is it? A release, yeah. So, yes, exactly, right. Uh, that kind of comes out of like Stanley Milgram and all these abuses of, of power in, in, in psychology and sociology. So, And that doesn't exist, obviously, when you take a BuzzFeed close. You're not signing a release saying, I understand this is being used for experimental research or I understand this is going to be sold to a third party. You're just plugging in information. Right. So if you're kind of initial entry point to this research was sort of your own uh, use of quizzes um, for personal identification. Like, having gone through this kind of long history, <laughs> um, do you feel like you have a really substantially different perspective on, like, what, you know, why you even are taking these quizzes, or, like, what's, the, what's driving the, the popularity of them? Um, I mean, I still think they're fun. <laughs> um, and I think that they're, um, you know, uh, I think that... Um, uh, and I, I don't think the question of why they're popular is simple. I mean, I think that um, you'd see a, a fair amount of dismissive stuff 
um, about BuzzFeed quizzes or internet quizzes or Myers-Briggs or any of this, that essentially it's just about narcissism. It's just about people wanting to think about themselves and wanting to, you know, kind of, um, uh, yeah, basically, you know, the, think about themselves. And uh, I think that's, that's a part of it. Um, Certainly, uh, but there's also there's a social element. I mean, one of the ways that the BuzzFeed quizzes are so similar to the Victorian confession albums is they those were also shared among groups of friends, right? And part of the fun of it was seeing what your friends answered to questions and seeing. And uh, so, social media has really kind of I think brought that element of the questionnaire back. Um, and then I think there's also a part uh, in terms of the why these things are so popular, especially something like Myers Briggs. There's a we really have a faith in science, which is almost kind of touching because none of these things work. I mean, not even the not even the really you know hardcore scientific ones that psychologists have 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 tried to make. None of them have very good uh, track records as far as actually predicting anything about people's behavior or their personalities. I mean, they're all essentially you know frivolous in a sense so uh but i think that even people who take the buzzfeed quizzes or the uh myers-briggs tests online there's some part of them that's like belief believes in the method believes that they can actually get a real result by putting this information in Hmm. um i have many more questions maybe i'll just limit myself to just a couple and then open it up to you all to kind of finish the ritual of questioning post post reading um but I guess, well, let's go with this one. Um, so what is the trait that you most despise in yourself? <laughs> I, knew, I knew that one, I didn't know which Proust questionnaire question was coming. I knew one was. Um, the trait that I most despise in myself. Uh, let's, say, let's say cowardice. <laughs> and your most treasured possession? Um... My daughter? Is that a possession? No, it's not really a possession. It is to you. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like her legal guardian. Um, Let's go with that. All right. And uh, how would you like to die? (laughs) In my sleep. All right. And then what is your annual income? Um, The reason I asked that last one is... um, some questions are obviously more fun to answer than others. Yeah. Um, and you sort of see that there's sort of like a, there's different levels at which people, there's a, there's a gradient, I guess, of like personal disclosure that doesn't necessarily overlap completely with like a, this kind of personal vulnerability maybe. Right. Do you feel like you've discovered like sort of like where that dividing line is or where do people stop wanting to answer questions? For me personally or for like humankind? For, for like in, in terms of like how these surveys are designed, it seems like one of the threads in the book is that the most successful surveys kind of end up being either like institutionally uh, you know, mandatory yeah. or things that somehow people are just compelled to answer them even though there's like literally no reason for them to do so. And in some ways the ones that are like um, that become truly successful like Myers-Briggs, it's like people start doing them you know, even though they might develop in a kind of social science realm, they become this other kind of thing. Whereas, you know, no one fills out a census form yeah. for fun. That's not a fun activity right. for anybody. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think, so I think, like, for instance, my editor, when he said, I hate questionnaires, I think he was thinking of, like, tax forms, census forms, like, doctor's office forms. Like, he was thinking of, like, real bureaucratic. Because that's almost, and I think in the, in the introduction, I kind of distinguished, because, like, 
there really is like the form, right? The bureaucratic form. And the only point of that is to sort you and kind of fit you into a system and kind of, and really there's nothing in it for you except that you can access the service that, you know, it doesn't tell you anything about yourself that you didn't already know. And then there's questionnaires which tend to like at least claim to give you some kind of knowledge or test you so that you can be on some kind of, you know, that, that you can be sort of, uh, like to, another thing I talk about in the book is Scientology uh, tests, Scientology personality tests, right? And, and the, the idea behind that is that you are identifying the flaws in your personality. I mean, they don't tell you it's they're looking for flaws. They say, you know, you're just what kind of person are you? But it always is you're horribly flawed, you know, uh, person. And then, and then they try to sell you classes that are, you know, that are uh, uh, appropriate to that. So, um, so yeah, I might be losing track of the question. But, um, but uh, well, let's maybe open it up. I mean, I'll, like, re-ask it as, like, an underlying thread that you can, like, pick up if you want. But it's just sort of, like, w- w- what are the kinds of questions that people like to answer? Which yeah, I think you've yeah, kind yeah. of gotten at. Right. Um, but I think anything that seems, that seems trivial... Uh, that seems like no one would actually benefit from having that information about you, which is part of why the BuzzFeed things are so successful, I think, is that they're ridiculous. Like, the, 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 the things they're testing for are ridiculous. The questions are ridiculous. The whole thing is, you know, it, like, it's usually... It's, it's, in this, it, it's, it's all kind of um, designed to seem very unserious, Right, um, but I mean, the funny thing about that is that in some cases you are giving up information that is in another context you might never give up. Right, there was one that was very popular, sort of viral hit. Um, How privileged are you? I think, which was like the form of a checklist, and you check off uh, various things. And some of them are like, you know, like um, have you ever been in a mental hospital? Like, have you, you know, like uh, th- things like that. Uh, you know, do you have like a, do you have an STD? All these things that like, you know, uh, I'm not sure that was actually a question, but but the, but very. <laughs> personal information, right, that was supposed to uh, assess, like, are you a privileged person or not? And, uh, you know, if, if that information were, uh, you know, were put into a different context, it could be used to discriminate against you in you know, all kinds of ways. So, anyway, that's, that's my answer. I think people are usually fine answering questions as long as they don't really think about what use they'll be put to. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, some of the older questionnaires I looked at, are they're just kind of hilariously blunt about like ways to test for psychosis or something like um, I'm trying I'm trying to remember exact uh, exact uh, uh, examples, but um, they're just they're just so on the nose, right? About like, um, uh, uh, do you know anybody who's trying to do you harm? Do you ever have a queer feeling as if you were not your old self? Do you feel like jumping off when you were on a high place? Do you feel a strong desire to go and set fire to something? It's like these things are like, how can anyone not realize they're being tested for? Psychosis. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So with that, um, we invite you to test Evan for psychosis. If you have any questions, um, this is sort of like maybe a rare opportunity to learn from an expert. Uh, every, anything you've ever wondered about questions or maybe to find out about Evan himself? I know everything about He's questions. He's compelled to answer everything. Um, I guess I'll, I'll call on people. Um, you uh, in the black shirt who's not Lyra. <laughs> Very subtle psychological, you know, normal 
bizarre or tribal kind of feelings, aspirational. It almost feels they're real borderline yeah well i mean um so i guess you know psychology is a big part of the i mean i think like uh psychology and sociology are the two kind of disciplines that i look at the most um and galton is sort of you know one of the founding mean, he's he's very important in the history of psychology as well he, um he had a questionnaire that i skipped over uh called the breakfast table questionnaire which is about uh, visual imagery and it's it's test it's uh, asks you to imagine a breakfast your breakfast table and describe you know what what what's there it's some sort of a test of, of visual imaging so I, I don't know what you were saying about sort of being able to visualize something in your mind um, and I think uh, one of the problems that has cropped up in the history of psychology and it's just a just a problem that's kind of intrinsic to psychology is um, you know, uh, tests have to assume some kind of normal, right? They have to assume some kind of baseline uh, mental health. And uh, it's it's certainly not obvious what that is, right? Uh, it's certainly not obvious. <laughs> yeah, 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 possibly. So um, you can uh, improve the test however much you want statistically, and you, know, you can refine these instruments more and more, but you're still working with an you know, essentially subjective idea of mental health to begin with. So I think that's a problem that's never really gotten solved. Um, you know, maybe some psychologists would disagree with me, but I, I don't think they, many would actually. Um, there's essential kind of arbitrariness to it. Um, and uh, yet, because questionnaires are these kind of uh, technological, technical instruments, uh, people can just kind of focus on, oh, let's improve the technology, let's improve the test. Uh, and you're not addressing the original problem, which is, what are you testing for? What, what are you trying to discern? All right, more questions. You. Um, Thanks for your book. Congratulations. I I was just wondering if there's any meaningful difference between uh, questionnaires administered by an actual human being to another person and questionnaires that a person might just take on their own. Uh like the quality of the information captured, yeah. people's degree of honesty. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, there are differences. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I think I read a fair amount about this that didn't end up in the book, but um, but I still will try to answer. So the question is just about differences between questionnaires that are administered by people versus ones that are administered by taken over the internet or administered by a machine or maybe even going further back, like write in, you know, write in ballots and things. Um, so it can go either way. I mean, it's sort of a, um, uh, I think it's, it's well known in like po- polling that um, people will sometimes lie to a, a human being. Well, some of them will be honest about their, uh, about their uh, real opinions. And this is, I know this was recently came into play with, with polls about Trump, right? Is that uh, people were maybe underreporting support for Trump because they felt a little embarrassed to admit to a pollster that they were supporting Trump. Um, so certainly in some ways, um, uh, human, human interaction can kind of skew the results and you might get better, you know, more accurate results from people taking a survey on the internet or via mail. Um, on the other hand, um, I think, you know, uh, having a human being there probably gives you some sense of like responsibility to the survey, whereas uh, you might, in the privacy of your own home, be more. I mean, I certainly I know with something as you know trivial as like you know the BuzzFeed things, people don't care about whether their answers are truthful, right? I mean, they're they're kind of and they might take the test over and over and over to get a different result. So um, 
So I don't think there's a necessarily, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, you get better results with a person as opposed to um, some, other, some other way. Um, it kind of depends what the question is. Um, uh, but there, 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 all, there is all kinds of interesting, I mean, especially in like mid-century, there was all kinds of research about how to um, elicit the best, you know, the best answers from people. I think that one of the things that was thought was that women were better at uh, administering questionnaires than men, that, that people felt more comfortable with them, and et cetera. So, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question, and I think it is still something that, like, psychologists and sociologists think about a lot. All right, let's maybe take two more questions. You and then you. You. Yeah. Yeah, I have a whole chapter on women's magazine quizzes. Um, so that was fascinating to me. Um, the kind of prehistory of that. It was yet another place where eugenics <laughs> came into the picture uh, because uh, the, like the Cosmo quizzes and quizzes in women's magazines, um, pretty much the, um, the, the ancestor of those or the predecessor of those is um, marriage counseling uh, questionnaires, uh, which uh, sort of came, uh, came about in, uh, uh, let's see, America, and I think like the 20s and 30s, maybe a little bit later, um, and this guy named Paul Popino, who actually was uh, right here in L.A., was, um, was sort of one of the founding fathers of that, that discourse, that uh, uh, science of marriage counseling. Also a really hardcore eugenicist, uh, did a lot of research uh, about, he wrote a book called Sterilization for Human Betterment. Um, uh, just like really, really <laughs> hardcore. Um, <laughs> And um, and one of the things there was a, there was kind of a turn actually okay I can date it more precisely now yeah there was a turn like after World War II the Nazis kind of discredited eugenics right uh, people it was not cool anymore and and it was quite it was quite mainstream prior to that like it was uh, it was pretty mainstream science uh, there were a lot of scientists who were arguing against it but there were it had a lot of you know mainstream support uh, especially in psychology uh, so after the Nazis discredited eugenics uh, eugenicists didn't change their beliefs they still thought we need to make you know we need to uh, preserve the purity of the, the human race which usually meant the white race and we need to you know sort of select for you know the better traits or whatever uh, but there was a move from um, they call it negative to positive eugenics, so that instead of talking about sterilization and the unfit and things like this, they were talking about how to have a better marriage, how to find your perfect mate, et cetera, et cetera. It start, started to become a discourse of uh, kind of, in, in, uh, yeah, uh, more, more of positivity, right? And, and this, um, this filtered into women's magazines like pretty quickly. Um, so there were all the early quizzes in in women's magazines were written first by male doctors, uh, people like Popino. He had a famous column called um, "Can This Marriage Be Saved?" Um, but uh, a lot of a lot of male psychologists and marriage counselors were writing these quizzes. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so this discourse, um, and of course, I, I, and I don't mean to say also that because it has roots in this, it's an evil thing, and, you know, it's terrible that people take quizzes in women's magazines now, right? I mean, things all the time emerge out of, you know, kind of sinister <laughs> origins and, 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 and are fine. But, um, but yeah, I, so I was really interested in that particular discourse, and, and I think um, in a lot of ways, 
uh, sites like BuzzFeed borrow from women's magazines in terms of some of their some of their rhetoric and some of their um, like strategies for getting people to take the take their tests. So it's a very important um, it's a very important kind of uh, stream of things. This this uh, question of women and gender and uh, marriage. All right, last question. You. Questionnaires by several grad students in various Facebook groups. Mm. I'm in where it's like I don't know them, but they're you know for their thesis or something. And having not been in grad school, is that wondering if that's like a major part of all research? It's for their research. It's for like yeah. are they anthropologists or something or no. yeah. So, um, maybe sociologists. Uh huh. I think so, yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of books about it. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd have to imagine there are courses on it, or at least methods courses, where they devote a lot of time to it. And um, this might be one of the, the drier parts of the book, although I found it interesting. But there, there, I, did, I did talk a little bit about questionnaire construction and all of the... For both political polls and like um, marketing research surveys, which were sort of the two biggest, that, those were the, that's where, all, where all the juice was with questionnaires in the mid-century, right? That, figuring out what, who people are going to vote for and figuring out what they're going to buy. That was like where all the all the money and all the research funding went. Um, but uh, but yeah, people were very concerned about how to construct these questionnaires so that they would uh, the questions would be um, the least ambiguous. Uh, they, the, so they would give you the most, you know, kind of pertinent answers so that uh, people, so they weren't biased in the case of polls, you know, like that, that they, they worked really hard to try to make these extremely rigorous instruments. And yeah, but it, it's true. A lot of the questionnaires you see, I mean, scientific ones, uh, if they're made by grad students or even just, you know, scientists, can be really badly written, like really confusing, totally unclear what they're asking, or, you know, depending on how you interpret the question, your answer might mean something completely different. All right. Well, on that, um, we will save the remainder of our questions for one-on-one -on -one time. Uh, I guess one question we have is, where can we get a copy of this book? Right here at Skylight <laughs> Books. Um, thank you so much. Um, Evan will be signing. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.